Greetings to all our listeners, wherever you are today, and thanks for joining us for On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. My name is Barry Botino, an associate editor with Safety and Health, and I'm joined by my trusty colleagues and fellow associate editors, Alan Ferguson and Kevin Drewley. This is June, and it's number 16 for those of you keeping score at home. We're coming to you today from our respective homes, but very soon we'll be together again in our National Safety Council audiences and studio, and I, for one, cannot wait for that day to come. We thank you so much for spending some of your time with us today for a new episode of the podcast, and we hope everyone out there is staying safe and healthy during this time. A special shout out goes to the safety professionals who are doing their very best every single day to keep workers healthy and safe this month, which is National Safety Month and every month during the pandemic. If you'd like to keep up with the latest news on COVID-19 and other daily updates from around the safety world, please check out our website. We're at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. We also have a brand new website for our sister publication, Family Safety and Health. You can find us at safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash family to learn all about safety away from work. During this month's episode, we'll dip our toes in the water and take a deep dive with Alan into one of our stories from the June issue of Safety and Health, Alan will discuss HASCOM training, including why it's important to OSHA, to employers, and to workers. Our five questions with interview segment this month is one you definitely don't want to miss. And of course, stay tuned for our pop quiz when we'll talk about the most impactful safety lessons we've learned during our time at the National Safety Council. So let's cue the music and get this episode rolling. Every month here on The Safe Side, we take an in-depth look at a story from the pages of Safety and Health magazine. We call this segment our deep dive, and this month we'll be chatting with Alan about a feature he wrote about hazard communication training. HAZCOM traditionally is one of OSHA's top 10 most frequently cited standards, landing at number two for fiscal year 2020. In the story, Alan takes readers into the various components that help determine how employers can best protect workers from exposures to chemicals, both produced in the workplace and imported into the workplace, as well as ways to communicate those hazards to workers. So, Alan, without further ado, the floor is yours for this deep dive into HASCOM training. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. As you mentioned, HASCOM is, and as I'm sure we and many other people know, one of OSHA's most cited standards. In writing this story, I feel as though I got a better view into just how complex HASCOM and chemical safety is. You've got to protect people from exposures to chemicals. You've got to know what level of exposure is hazardous. You have to know what chemicals are in your facility. You have to know if the safety data sheet you're getting from the manufacturer is complete or incomplete. You have to understand how to write your HASCOM program, how to train employees, and what personal protective equipment to provide. And the list goes on and on and on. That's why I would imagine that so many employers have issues with hazard communication and chemical safety. And that's why I I wrote kind of a cautionary note in the story that if you're an organization that's working with chemicals, you're likely going to need some help either internally, obviously someone you hire, or externally, a consultant, for example. And as mentioned, I wrote about one part of the HASCOM standard training, which is covered under 1910.1200H. And it's a short section in terms of the number of parts. I believe it's 10, not including the title. Yet, as OSHA's Patrick Kappas mentioned during our top 10 presentation, it's one of the areas where employers fall short, along with not having a written or implemented HASCOM program. So first, who needs to be trained under the standard? 
It's employees who will encounter hazardous chemicals under normal operating conditions or in foreseeable emergencies. And that training should occur at the time of initial assignment or when a new chemical hazard is introduced into a workplace. And that's not necessarily when a new chemical or new formulation of that chemical is coming in. As an example, if an employer has only worked with chemicals that are irritants but brings in one that's flammable, that's a new hazard. And typically, employers will try to cover themselves by training a broad array of employees, one source said. I believe basically it's anyone who may encounter hazardous chemicals, even in isolated incidents. And, you know, it's always a good idea to go beyond compliance. Workers also must be trained on aspects such as the hazards of the chemicals they're working with, methods to detect if there's a release of that hazardous chemical, where to find and how to understand safety data sheets, where to find and how to use personal protective equipment, and how to get information from things such as labels and pictograms. Well, Alan, you offer some good tips in your story, and I wanted to ask you, are there other tips that employers should know that are in your story? Yeah, there was one that was really surprising to me, and that's what you really have to follow what's written to the letter in your HASCOM program. So if you write, Bob Gibson is going to provide in-person training twice per year, and you switch to online training, or, you know, Mickey Lolich is now providing training, you're in violation of the standard. If you haven't updated your written program, I'm sure you guys and some other people out there appreciate the baseball references. That's why one source said to keep it general when referring to training methods, and another source said to avoid naming specific people, you know, in case they leave the company. And speaking of training, it's important to document who has received training and when, and that's something that will help your case if OSHA is looking into your HASCOM compliance. It's also a helpful step to review and audit your HASCOM program and your training on a regular basis, you know, once a year or twice a year, for example. Also, during that view, make sure that the training is still being delivered in a language that every one of your workers can understand. If you hire workers who speak another language, you need to adjust and deliver training in the language that they understand. Also, make sure that your training provides employees the opportunity to ask questions and give feedback. Finally, it's a good idea to keep the lines of communication open between EHS and departments such as purchasing and R&D to make sure EHS knows what chemicals are coming in the facility and can adjust accordingly. Well, what are some ways that employers can reinforce HASCOM training and why is that important? First of all, you know, it's important because as I write, you know, how many of us have sat in a classroom and forgotten what was said within days or hours? One source said, if it's rarely used, it's not remembered. The other important reason for enforcement is if OSHA comes on site, they're going to interview employees in all likelihood. And if you have chemicals, they're probably going to ask questions pertaining to HASCOM. And those employees have to show that they understand the training that they've been given. That means they know things like some of the aforementioned, what chemicals they're working with, where to find the SDS, how to read it, how to get information from labels, etc. That's why one source said... One good tip is to talk with randomly selected employees during a routine inspection or walk around. Ask questions, you know, kind of informally quiz them. You do know what chemicals you're working with. Do you know where to find the PPE and how to use it? And another source said that drills are a good idea. Can you go find the SDS for this chemical you're working with and find the health hazards that are listed? You can also test if employees know what to look for on a label and if they know how to get certain information from it. Another way to reinforce training, one source said, is putting up posters in a break room on subjects such as pictograms. And there's also lunch and learns or online options. It's all part of a multi-pronged approach that will hopefully keep workers safe and keep employers in compliance. 
As a final note, you should be aware that OSHA will likely publish changes to its HASCOM standard to align with the seventh version of GHS sometime in the near future. And from what I've read in the proposed rule, OSHA doesn't plan to change anything in 1910.1200H, but there are a couple of new subjects that employers may need to incorporate into training. And some of those are detailed in the story, so you'll have to read. Well, thank you, Alan Ferguson, for that, that great deep dive. If you want to read more about Alan's feature story and other features and news from around the safety world, please be sure to check out the June issue of Safety and Health Magazine or visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. If you're listening to this podcast, we're pretty sure you like staying safe on the job and keeping others safe as well. We're also pretty sure that you want to stay safe and healthy when you're away from work, and we have a great way to help you out. It's Family Safety and Health Magazine, from the makers of the award-winning Safety and Health Magazine. Family Safety and Health has tips and advice on topics from the home to the roadway, and from your local parks and recreation areas to your medicine cabinet. Visit nsc.org wellness or call 800-621-7619 to learn how you can get a subscription for yourself, your coworkers, your friends, and your family. Remember, that's Family Safety and Health, brought to you by the team that brings you Safety and Health Magazine each and every month. This month in our Five Questions with Interview segment, we welcome Pam Woloski, the Senior Program Manager for Specialty Technical Consultants Incorporated, a management consulting firm that works with clients around the globe to enhance their EHS performance. As an experienced safety professional and a woman in a male-dominated field, Pam is uniquely qualified to discuss both the challenges and the opportunities for women in safety. So Pam, thank you so much for discussing this topic with us today and welcome to On the Safe Side. Great to have you here. Thank you, and and I appreciate the invitation. I love doing these kinds of podcasts, you know, talking and chatting and having a conversation. It's fun. Great. Wanted to start with you today, Pam, was we're curious over the course of your career, how have opportunities changed for women in safety? I think there have been some major changes and some not major changes. I've been a safety professional for about 26, 27 years. I do believe that there's been a little bit of a faster progression uh, for women in safety in the past 10 years, maybe maybe a few more than that. I think there's really a, more of an increase for appreciation of a more balanced profession. And so joining the field or uh, getting educated to prepare to join the field has become easier and has created more opportunities. And I think that lines up kind of nicely with more of the changes that we see in most non-traditional careers uh, that have not been used by women over the course of, of the workforce. So I think that that's just kind of levels off along in there. I think there are still barriers. The representation in safety hasn't really caught up with the general workforce data yet. Interestingly enough, you really can't find out how many women there are in our profession. There are some data points that you can find. For example, the the National Safety Council does its annual job outlook and about 25% of your respondents are females. ASSP, I'm a, a member of the board of directors, has about 30% of its members are female. I teach a safety class in a local university. And over the course of four semesters, I've had about 25% of the members of my class are female. So 25, 30, I mean, that's not really a true sample, but I think we can glean some insight from that, that we're uh, probably not at that near half point where many women in the workforce are represented. 
we still see that occupational health and safety is a male-dominated profession for the most part. But I do believe it's changing and catching up. And I'm looking forward to seeing what happens in the next 10 years. I think there are some opportunities out there that'll begin to move that needle even further. What advice would you give female college students or other women looking for a career in safety? Well, let me start by just sharing my intro into safety and how I got into this profession, because I think for folks who are working or doing other things, there are many paths into this field. There's a high proportion of non-traditional folks that enter in. And, and, you know, typically you see people who are craftspersons who really seem to have a passion for safety and work their way into a safety role. I came into safety through social work. Out of high school, I got a bachelor's and a master's in social work and uh, did that for about 15 years. Ironically, and I sort of jokingly say, I, I decided to get out of the field because I was sort of tired of dealing with people and their problems. And look where I am now. But I went back for a degree in environmental science and was working for a consulting company that did a lot of environmental types of projects. We designed and built landfills and other kinds of things. And uh, my boss said to me one day, you know, we'd like you to take care of the safety program. We'd like you to take on that responsibility here at this company. And I said, well, I don't know anything about safety. And the person said to me, well, you're a fast learner. We think you can manage it. And that was the start. And I took that on and I learned and I don't have a formal additional degree in safety, but I am a certified safety professional and I've been working in the field ever since. This is a great time to be joining this profession because of some of the opportunities that I think are out there now. But I also remind them to be prepared for struggles that are related both to their gender and their lack of experience. When we enter into a profession, we have that lack of experience that we have to overcome and become more qualified and respected in our professions. Women and even other marginalized groups, you know, we're talking about women in safety here, but other marginalized groups face both of those struggles. And so being prepared for that. By the time I first started doing this kind of work, I found myself in a class teaching in a steel mill. And these were 25 plus year maintenance and technical kind of folks who'd been working in the steel mill for a really long time. And I was trying to teach them about a particular safety topic. And they looked at me and there was no reason to believe that I had anything to offer them. And so I had to learn that I did have something to offer, but it was only in the context of I may not have been doing your job for 15 years the way you have, but I know something about this topic. And I believe that if we put our heads together and partner together, you bring something to the table, I bring something to the table, and we can learn from each other. Understanding your limitations, but not necessarily discounting your strengths and being aware of those. And that was the strategy I employed in those early days. You mentioned various struggles and challenges for women in the field, and one of those certainly is social stereotyping on the job. Just as women continue to face that, what are some strategies for them to move past it and excel in their careers? I'd like to approach this particular question from two vantage points. First, I would talk about it as an individual, me as an individual safety professional. But then I would also talk about it as me as a safety professional within an organization. Individual things first. 
One of the things I learned early in my career was the value of your salary and your starting salary and how typically men versus women approach salary negotiations. And what I learned was that most women see the salary offer as this is what we'll pay you and they accept it, even if it isn't what they thought they wanted or what they thought they were worth. They may have done their research and believe their people in their position made typically more, but they take that offer. On the other hand, males tend to see those salary offers as the starting point of negotiations and don't hesitate to come back with a counter offer and a discussion at that point and often wind up with a higher salary. So when you do that at your first job in your career over the course of a 40-year career, that differentiation compounds itself to the tune of a million or more dollars over the course of a career. What I always say to folks that are beginning to get into the profession is make sure that you negotiate that first salary offer and pay attention to what you think you're worth, do your research, and make sure that you get what you believe you're worth. Don't settle because over the course of your career, you could be leaving a lot of money on the table. I also recommend that people think about sort of a three-legged stool of professional development as an individual. And I think about mentoring I think about modeling and I think about sponsoring and they're each different tactics and they each have different purposes. Lots of people are familiar with mentoring. It's a relationship that you develop with somebody who is your mentor and you are the mentee and you work together on improving your skill set or your experiences to make you ready for the next part of your career to help you grow and develop. And that's a very important thing for people to do. And I highly recommend it. The other thing is modeling. And when I think about modeling, I think about the phrase that if you can see it, you can be it. In order to think of yourself as someone who can excel in this career, you need models, role models who have done that. Look for those people. You don't necessarily have to have a relationship with them, but get to know their career trajectory, understand what they do and how they got there and see them as models for yourself and believe that you can be there too if that's something that you aspire to. The third one is sponsoring, which is different than mentoring. Sponsoring is a relationship where one person who has access to opportunities brings you into those opportunities and brings you into a meeting or recommends you for participation on a committee or a task force or an activity or mentions your name when discussions are being held about who's ready for the next step. Sponsors are people that have access and can open doors for you. And that's based upon the assumption that you have the skills, you know how to do that particular task or activity, you're ready for that next step. But you just need somebody to bring you in so that you can then take advantage of that. I think all three of those are important. And as you're working through your career, you should pay attention to all three and use them to your advantage. What we find about women who are involved in mentoring and sponsoring types of activities are also more successful in their own careers. You may be a mentor as opposed to a mentee. You may be a sponsor as opposed to a sponsee find that network of supportive professionals, whether they be a women's type of network or just a network in general that supports your career track. 
You need a combination of those kinds of things over your career. Obviously, the National Safety Council has its women's division. The American Society of Safety Professionals has the Women in Safety Excellence Common Interest Group or WISE. Uh, Both of these are excellent opportunities for you to get to know and develop that network. It makes all the difference in the world as you grow and develop in your career to have that group of people to ask questions, to have as a sounding board, to challenge you to be better and to grow. As a member of an organization, I think there's a lot of things to pay attention to. As you grow in your career, it's more about your leadership characteristics than your gender. Women tend to be more collaborative and team building in their approach to leadership, and men tend to be more decision making and information gathering in their leadership characteristics and style. Both are valuable in an organization. Those styles, I think the idea that they are at odds with each other is something we have to be very careful to avoid that impression. They are complementary, and all organizations need the best of both worlds. Most leaders that I've had experience with who have done a really great job as a leader have a blend of both of those styles. They have a tendency to use the style that's most appropriate to the situations. For example, in the early days of the pandemic, when there were a lot of unknowns and things were changing rapidly and organizations were having to make decisions quickly, that leadership style probably functioned best for the organization. As we moved through the pandemic, when innovation and retrofitting became more important, leadership styles that involved teamwork and engagement and working together to solve problems probably worked better. The important thing is the adage that a rising tide lifts all ships. Both styles of leadership allow an individual to make themselves more useful within the organization. I also think that we should focus less as individual organizations on mentoring and more on sponsoring. I think more people are familiar with mentoring. The problem with mentoring is that it assumes that the person needs to change or improve. There are lots of reasons why many women could excel and move past and move up in their careers if they were more appreciated for the skill set that they do have. There's this myth of the pipeline and the idea that we would love to have a more diverse leadership team or board or panel for our conference, but we just couldn't find anybody. And that really is truly a myth. So if you're in an organization that uh, has tended to use that as an excuse, I think one way that you can be more effective is to try to think about the systemic ways in which your organization might be hindering the progress. Think about your organization's hiring and recruitment biases or retainment strategies. Look at job descriptions and pay rates and where there are differences in people doing the same job but being paid differently. All of these are infrastructure failures that create challenges in finding candidates. It's not that the candidates aren't out there, but the infrastructure challenges make it difficult for that to happen. Candidates exist. Sometimes they're right in your own organization, but it's the system that doesn't support finding them. One example that you may be familiar with is orchestras. Large, very important orchestras have gone to a blind audition process so that the person auditioning for the particular instrument does that audition behind a screen or curtain so that the team has no idea about any gender or demographic characteristics about that person. That's a way to begin to find that kind of a barrier and remove it. It might be an unconscious barrier, but it's a barrier nonetheless. 
Can your organization look at some of those ways and can you be a part of elevating that kind of information so that your organization understands where its barriers are and what it might be able to do to get rid of them? More companies and organizations are now having conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we wanted to know how you feel that has impacted women in safety. One point that I would make before I talk about that specifically is that we want to make sure that we're talking about a broad range of diversity. Typically, and more easily, when we talk about diversity, we tend to think about those visual demographics that we can see, male, female, young, old, race. And those are important because those are the first views that we see. So when I go to a website and I look at the senior leadership team and I see a diverse senior leadership team, or when I go to a conference and I listen to a panel presentation and it's diverse, those are important. But beyond that, and just as important, are those diversity characteristics of thought and experiences. We have to be careful not to just look at what we see in terms of diversity, but also what's underneath that. You can have a very demographically diverse group that may all have the same thought processes and experiences, and that's not going to solve the problem either. This is a transition that we're undergoing now, not a replacement, that this is an opportunity for us to transition into more diverse and equitable and inclusive workplaces as opposed to replacing or moving people out. And I think it's really important that we keep that in mind. Companies understand that they're more profitable when there is diversity within the company. And so the same is true for the safety profession. We are a better profession. We serve our workforces and our organizations better when we are a more diverse profession. A lot of organizations who realize the diversity and the importance of the DEI process and those kinds of activities are taking advantage of those. And so women are being sought out for leadership roles, for their skill set, for their perspective. Women can benefit from that who are safety professionals when they can seek out and find those organizations that have that perspective, that are focused on that. Another nod to the pandemic, though, I think is also that it has created opportunities for an increase in this transition to a more balanced leadership profile for organizations. It allows women who are safety professionals to also participate in that collaborative styles, those innovative styles, those teamwork building styles of leadership and safety professionals who could embrace those uh, made themselves more valuable in their organizations and can take advantage of that. Women safety professionals who think about how the pandemic has affected their organization and the role they've played in it can also then impact themselves and the profession as well. I think we're really in the middle of a shift from the shock of the pandemic. And so I think women's voices are being sought after, providing us with more opportunities for representation and more support for us in the profession. What do you feel companies can do to get more women involved in safety? I want to approach the answer to this question from two aspects. One is as a company and the other is as a profession. First and foremost, organizations have to acknowledge that there's a problem, have to acknowledge that there's a gap, acknowledge that the percentages that we looked at at the very beginning of women who are involved in this profession are not representative of the typical workforce demographics. Because if an organization doesn't acknowledge that there's a problem, they're less likely to look for solutions to the problem. There's no impetus to change. The status quo works very well. 
So companies, I think, have to educate themselves. There is no end to opportunities to do that now. I mean, this podcast, the article that I participated in that uh, Safety and Health published in January, where a number of voices in this space were being interviewed, I think those are important ways in which we can begin to educate ourselves and be aware of what the problem is and then, again, begin to problem solve together. The idea is to identify those barriers, to identify those silos and work to disable them. The hiring and recruitment practices are a really important thing for organizations to look at. Are you doing what you can to identify female candidates? So back to that myth of the pipeline. Fast Company is doing some discussions about diversity and equity in general in hiring and recruitment practices. And I was listening to something that they had published not too long ago. And this was an organization that had two people who were involved in the same job, but their pay scale was very different. And when they looked at their resumes and their job descriptions, discovered that really they were doing the same job. The only difference was where they'd gone for education. And as they dug a little deeper into the way in which their hiring practices were scaled, there was a definite willingness to give graduates of certain colleges an upper level that they were deserved more in the pay scale because of the school that they went to. And when they really looked at trying to flatten that out a little bit, it made the difference that the education, that the degree you had, the company realized that that shouldn't necessarily be an indicator of what you were worth, assuming you were qualified to do the job and that you were doing the job the same as everybody else. So those barriers are out there. We tend to want to say, you know, we do everything to recruit for women and getting them involved as a company, but we definitely have a blind side when it comes to those barriers and we have to be willing and open to look for them and identify them and and figure out how that can be changed. The challenge, of course, is that as a company, it may be more difficult to have an impact on getting women involved in safety. In that respect, we have more of a challenge and a responsibility as a profession to do that. But in partnership with organizations that hire occupational safety and health professionals, I think we can work together to do more and have more of an impact on that. Companies that want to participate in those kinds of activities that really feel called to do that could partner with professional organizations, just like the National Safety Council or ASSP or BCSP. BCSP just started a a new Celebrating Women in Safety initiative where they're uh, highlighting women in the profession. I talked about the networking groups that the National Safety Council and ASSP already have. AIHA is another sort of sister organization. So if an organization wants to do something, they can partner with those professional organizations and find ways to work together. On the other side, those professional organizations can partner uh, with companies who are interested in this effort uh, to collaborate on activities and things that we might be able to do together. As a profession, we have some obligations to seek out companies who are interested in elevating and getting more women involved in safety. The other challenge is that we need to figure out where to reach potential women safety uh, professionals. And it's certainly not when they're in college, although that's certainly one way we can do that. But in terms of making a real true impact, I don't know about you, but I started thinking about what I wanted to be when I grow up when I was in elementary school. 
where are those opportunities in elementary school and middle school and high school? Most places have career fairs and career days and opportunities for people to explore what a person in a particular profession does. As a company, what are you doing to engage with your local community, your local school district to do those kinds of things? As a professional, uh, what are you doing? Uh, Do you have children in school and can you go to the career day and talk about what it means to be a safety professional? Can you participate in a career fair? If you don't have children, you're still a member of a school district somewhere, so there's probably ways in which you can get involved. Think about where those opportunities to show young females in elementary school and middle school and high school what a women safety professional is and does to get them back to that modeling concept we were talking about before. If you can see it, you can be it. If you don't know what that profession is or that it even exists, what would encourage you to think about it or choose it? So those are some of the kinds of things that I think companies and professionals can do. I think it really is a partnership approach, and we really do need to work together on this. And all the questions that we've talked about at this point, my goal has been to just sort of really think about the different levels of which change can happen from individuals, from groups, professional societies, from organizations. Because that's really how change happens when groups who are impacted positively by that change get together identify those barriers and work together to change them. I appreciate the opportunity to do this because this is an opportunity for me to do exactly what I was just advocating uh, we need to do as women in safety. Well, Pam, we appreciate the conversation and, and we thank you for sharing your knowledge and expertise with our listeners today. For those listeners out there who want to go back into the Safety and Health Archives and read the story that Pam mentioned by Kevin, you can go to visit us at safetyandhealthmagazine.com and look for the story on women and safety leadership. Pam, it was a pleasure to have you with us here on The Safe Side. Like many people, we weren't always so well-versed in safety when we started here at the National Safety Council. And with June being National Safety Month, for this pop quiz, we want to talk about some of the safety lessons we've learned since coming to NSC. And I'll go first. I had a really bad habit of not wearing my seatbelt initially when I would start driving. I mean, I would go until like basically the car beeped at me. Going through our defensive driving training and learning about the three parts of the crash and learning that you keep going while your car is stopped, and especially your internal organs, that kind of really changed my outlook and I have now buckled my seatbelt before I put it in drive and make sure everyone else is buckled. So that's definitely something I've changed. What about you, Kevin? There's been several things that I feel like I have a heightened awareness to. And one of them is just things we report on, like the the call before you dig, dial 811. It seems like I would see just those stickers or a bumper sticker or by a work site a few years ago, writing a story on forklift safety and just a family friend who was a forklift operator growing up and just, oh yeah, Mr. Thompson's a forklift operator, but until really getting into the story and doing the research and reporting for it, it just sort of helps you revisit things and gives you a little bit of a a new spin on it. But I'd say something similar would be the the distracted walking, something that had done in family safety and health. A little bit of a culprit of the, the cell phone walk and talk. I'm trying to wean myself off cell phone in general, or at least sort of the the fear of missing out where you're pulling it out all the time. I don't think that I've seen it here in the in the U.S., but I remember in that story there was something about in Britain they were installing what amounted to football goalposts on on lampposts because people were doing 
the distracted walking so often, or even they were putting the the street signals in a panel in the ground because it was so commonplace to to look down at your phone. So those are some of the things, I guess. Uh, Barry, how about yourself? Well, this is a great question for National Safety Month, Alan. And for me, it would be, I always think of ladder safety and step stool safety. I can think of all the times helping my father when I was growing up, he'd be climbing up a ladder to whether that was clean gutters or to fix a shingle on the house or something like that. And I remember all the times that he had tools or something thrown over one of his arms and and never really had three points of contact. And now that I think back on it, I think of how unsafe that was. And as far as step stools go around the house, you know, my wife is always climbing on chairs to water plants and things like that. And I always have to remind her that a chair isn't necessarily a safe thing to, to be on. That's what a step stool is made for. So those are the things that really jump out to me. Well, those are all great answers. And now we want to hear from our listeners. Let us know a safety lesson you've learned at work or in life by emailing us at safehealth at nsc.org or check in with the hashtag SafesidePopQuiz on social media. We even may share some of your comments on a future episode of On the Safe Side. Well, we want to say thanks to everyone out there for spending a little time with us today. And remember, if you want to keep your employees, your colleagues, and your family members safe, we have just a publication for you, Family Safety and Health. Each issue is packed with helpful tips that will keep families safe at home and in the community, along with informational articles about your health. To get a free copy or learn more, visit our brand new website, safetyandhealthmagazine.com family, or subscribe by calling 800-621-7619. In the meantime, feel free to tell a fellow safety pro about this podcast. If you'd like to share some feedback, please email us at safehealth at nsc.org. To find stories such as Alan's HASCOM training story, as well as all the latest news about safety and health, visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Also, make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Original music was provided by Steve Maslin. We'll be back next month with another episode to have more safety-related discussions, talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile a little. Until then, please stay on the safe side. 